Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Every year at the Memorial Tournament, great golfers, amongst others, are honored, some long after they've passed away. This year, three terrific golfers were honored, Ken Venturi, Harvey Ward, and Champagne Tony Lima. On this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, we'll take a look back at the career of Lima, one of the most fun-loving guys to ever walk the fairways of the PGA Tour. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Thanks for joining me once again on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Sure, hope you've been enjoying the podcasts, and today, another great personality to remember, Tony Lima. When you look back at the history of golf and talk about the greats, names such as Jones, Hogan, Nelson, Palmer, Nicholas, and Player are the ones who most likely come to mind. Then there are Sarazen, Sneed, Watson, Trevino, and even Norman, and of course, how can we forget, Tiger Woods. Few of today's fans, those of the modern generation, might never have heard of Tony Lima. He played during the heyday of the big three, Palmer, Nicholas, and Player, and he was right on their heels. In fact, Lima thought the big three should have been the big four, and from 1963 to 1966, Lima was as good as anyone. During that period, he didn't miss a cut in a major tournament, and he finished in the top ten eight times. In 1963, he nearly won the Masters, losing by a single stroke to Jack Nicklaus. And in 1964, he won the British Open by five strokes over Jack. And with the British Open coming up in just a few short weeks, what better time than now to talk about Tony Lima? And joining me in just a moment will be Bill Rowland, who penned the book Champagne Tony Lima, Triumph to Tragedy. Bill, who wrote for such publications as Golf Digest, had unrestricted access to Lima's family while writing the book, and to this day remains a good friend of the Lima's. Of course, the sad part to the Lima story is the fact that in 1966, he was killed in a plane crash on a golf course along with his wife and others. But Tony's career on the golf course was something to celebrate. And from all accounts, that's what he would want everyone to do. Celebrate his accomplishments on the course and his terrific life off. Before we get into today's show, I'd like to remind everyone to visit our website, sportsfh.com. There you can find information on how to participate in a future podcast and how to support the show. As they say, every dollar counts. Speaking of support... Thanks to Hall of Fame sponsors Henry R. from New Jersey and Jack K. from Las Vegas. You can also follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Facebook and on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Now, 
Bill Rowland was a huge Tony Lima fan, and combined with his love for the game and for writing, writing a book about Tony Lima was a no-brainer. Here now is my conversation with Bill Rowland about the great Tony Lima. Bill, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here. So first, let me ask you this. Where did your inspiration come from to write this book? Why a book about Tony Lima? Well, he was always one of my favorite golfers, and uh, I had watched him several times, and I always liked him a lot. And I thought that uh, he had a the great character and was very uh, aggressive and competitive. And uh, along with Arnold Palmer, I must say he was one of my favorite golfers. Researching the material must have been half the fun. Tremendous. Uh, the way that all started is that I uh, wanted to do an article about Tony Lima uh, in 1984. And you may say, why, what, what made you pick that year? It was 20 year, it was the 20th year anniversary of his 1964 victory at St. Andrews in the British Open. And uh, I thought it'd be nice to have a 20th anniversary story. And I uh, got a hold of the Lima family, who, of course, still lived in San Leandro, California, and made contact with them, visited them, got some information so that Golf Digest would uh, publish the article, which they did in this uh, early spring, summer of 1984, 20th anniversary. You know, like many golfers, he had his ups and downs, a lot of ups, and he really wanted to win a major. Tell me about the 1964 British Open. This is probably the most uh, exciting part of his career. Um, what happened in May, uh, Tony's putting had gone sour, and he was at the Oklahoma City Tournament in May of 1964. And I think he had broken his putter uh, out of uh, anger. And he was on the practice green putting, and uh, Arnold Palmer was practicing as well and said, Tony, what have you put in? I'm not using it anymore. I broke it. And Arnold said, well, here, I've got one that this is a Tommy armor putter. I think you may like this. You got to give this putter a try. So he basically, Arnold said, Tony, try this putter. And he did. Well, shortly, we're talking two weeks later, he won the Thunderbird Open, which is at Westchester in early June of 1964 and he won it by defeating Mike Suchek at Westchester Country Club right outside of Rye, New York, about 40 miles north of New York City. Sure. But Tony made a 10-footer on the last hole to win the tournament and yes, he was using the putter that that Arnold Palmer had given to him. The very next week, he went to Michigan and, and Tony played in the uh, Buick Open at Warwick Hills and he he ended up winning that tournament by three shots over Dow Fisterwall. And so now he's got two tournaments in a row. And the very next tournament was the 1964 United States Open at Congressional right outside of Washington, D.C. And I think it was in Bethesda, Maryland. And everybody at that time was saying, you know, everybody's once again talking about Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, and Gary Player. But uh, Tony Lima's got a shot at this. And it turns out that that is in the period of time when he was going back, Tony was going back and forth about, I'm going to go to the British Open, which is going to be played at St. Andrews. No, I'm not going to go. 
And even his wife, Betty, went up to another golfer and said, tell me something. He keeps vacillating between going to the golf tournament in, in uh, Scotland and not going. Is this common? Is this what golf pros do? You know, she was, she couldn't figure out why he can't just make up his mind. Right. And in that period of time, in June, that's when Arnold had decided he had won the British Open in 1960 at Troon, and he won the 1961 at Royal Birkdale, but he played uh, terrible at uh, in the 1963 British Open, and, to- and Arnold decided not to go and play in the 1964. He just decided to take a year off and not fly over to Scotland, and he had a caddy named Tip Anderson, and that's one when Arnold and Tony talked about a month or so before the tournament, Arnold said, you want to win that thing? And of course, Tony was very inquisitive. He said, yes, but can you kind of go another step and tell me how? (laughs) He said, well, I can set it up so you can have Tip Anderson caddy for you and you'll win that thing. And uh, of course, Tony said, sure. And so let's go back to to the United States Open. Tony ended up coming in 20th and that was the year that it was like 95 or even hotter in temperature and the uh, humidity was about the same at congressional and they played 36 holes on saturday and ken venturi almost had a heat stroke and we all remember that but one thing we have to know and this is the behind the scenes they played 18 in the morning and 18 holes in the afternoon and it only got hotter as the day progressed but tony lima was a five eight ten shots back but during the break between the morning and the afternoon rounds tony went and saw ken venturi who was a friend of his from the uh, bay area and ken venturi was literally taking salt pills and drinking water and one of the doctors said i advise you not to play you're gonna have a heat stroke but tony lima said you know ken you can win this thing you know good luck play well i think you can win this thing go do it and so he gave him a lot of nice words of encouragement. And as we all know, Ken Venturi eventually won the, uh, the tournament later in the day at Congressional. And who was the first golfer to call him while Ken Venturi was just finishing up on his press interview afterwards? Obviously, it was Tony Lima that called him up and congratulated uh, Ken Venturi. Awesome. So after that week... Now we're two or three weeks before the British Open of 64. There was the Cleveland Open, and uh, Tony Lima won that. So in essence, he had won the Thunderbird, the Buick, and the Cleveland Open, three out of four tournaments in a four-week span. And uh, so his game, needless to say, he was making lots of putts with Arnold Palmer's putter that he gave to him. But his game was extremely sharp. And then he gets out to uh, St. Andrews, uses Tip Anderson. Very few practice rounds at at St. Andrews. Everybody said you got to get there way early, learn the course, and then you might have a shot. He said, I got Tip. Tip will tell me what to do, and I'll just execute what Tip tells me what to do, and I'm going to win the darn thing. And that's what he did. Exactly. And it was, was, as you said, Fred Corcoran, among others, as they were flying over – on the airplane, Fred Corcoran said, you know, you've got no chance of winning this thing. I mean, it's Sunday night. You just finished the Philadelphia, the White Marsh Open in Philadelphia. I tried to talk you out of playing in the thing. You ended up fifth. So you picked up a check for 
3600 bucks. That's all good, Tony. But you don't have a chance. This tournament starts on Wednesday. They play 18 holes Wednesday and Thursday. And uh, we play uh, 36 holes on Friday. And i got to read you one sentence that Fred Corcoran said. He said, the course has been there since the Mary Queen of Scots. And men are still trying to learn how to play it. You don't have a chance, you know. <laughs> and so Tony said, I don't design the golf courses. I just play them and as they were flying over. And so, yeah, Tony got there. And uh, one of his other friends, a very good friend of Tony's on the tour, Phil Rogers, from California, he played a practice round with Tony. And Phil said, Tony, I got one piece of advice for you, and you ought to take it now. And Tony said, what's that? And he said, Chip Anderson is a wonderful caddy, and he's spent his whole life at St. Andrews on this golf course caddying. And not only that, as we said earlier, he caddied for Arnold Palmer when Arnold won the British Open in 61 and 62. And Phil Rogers told Tony, he said, you listen to your caddy, Chip Anderson, and when he gives you a club, you use a club he gives you. And he did. Yeah. And and he wins the British Open, and and much like the players on tour, how much they loved and respected Tony from the time he teed up his first ball on tour, right away, the the the, the, the fans at St Andrews, they fell in love with Tony too. What was it about Tony Lima that everybody loved so much? At first, they didn't appreciate his thinking that he could win the. And keep in mind, he's won three out of his last five tournaments, so he's 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 on a, a a wave of a lot of confidence. And the fans just liked his attitude. At first, they questioned it, but as soon as he he took uh, he was within one shot of the lead after the first round and so forth. But they just, they called him the Jolly Yank, and he just has that personality. And uh, one thing that Tony really appreciated uh, from the quotes that I got a hold of is that he said, they got real fans over here. If you make a mediocre shot, the fans are not going to clap like they do in the United States. If you brush in a two foot putt, they're not going to do flips like the fans do here and say, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. No, no. But if you make a really great saving shot, uh, a chip or even a putt that's 60 feet away and you put it within a couple of feet, those fans realize the game of golf and they realize the difficulty and they appreciate your expertise and they'll let you know about it. And they did. And it was, so both sides, Tony Lima is a golfer and the fans that really know the game of golf in Scotland, they uh, appreciated each other basically. So many of us know the story of Tony, at least on the periphery, but I'm not too sure how many of us know just how great a golfer he was. Tell me about his game and what made him so good, maybe even great. Well, that's a good question. He uh, he played a lot of golf throughout high school and so forth. Then uh, I think it was 1953. He was born in 1934. So in 1953, when he was uh, 19 years old, he didn't know what he wanted to do. So he ended up going into the Marines for two years. And when he got out, he got an, had an opportunity to work at San Francisco Golf Club, which he did. And he played and played through uh, 55, 56, played in the United States Open, qualified in San Francisco, played in the United States Open, which was played at Oak Hill in 1957. And he was actually on started on the tour in 1958. 
And I'll tell you right now, he really, really had to grind it and work and practice uh, for quite some time before his first victory on the PGA Tour. So it didn't come easily, but at the same time, he was a real worker. Granted, he partied. Granted, he uh, took a few ladies to a dance here and there. <laughs> but, he, but he worked on his golf game. But what, what was it about his game? What made him, he worked at it. And, you know, you could look at Nicholas and you have an idea of what made him so good. Arnie and Gary Player, you know, the big three. What made Tony so good? What was it about his game that separated him from the other golfers? His game was strong all around. I, he, he hit the tee ball very nicely, good iron player, you know, short game. But I must say that he understood what he defined as the cone of contention. And by that, anything within 75 yards of the cup, Tony Lima considered that to be the cone of contention whereby you had to get up and down. You had to, you know, convert a uh, birdie on a par five or whatever the case may be. Or if you missed the green on your second shot on a par four and you were in a bunker or in the rough or on the collar or whatever, he really practiced hard at his short game and took advantage of his feel in order to get uh, the ball close to the hole and eventually became very strong that the short game became a very strong part of his all around game and saved a lot of pars, which could have easily been bogeys or even double bogeys. You know, Bill, I jumped ahead a little by mentioning Nicholas Palmer and player. He wasn't a fan of the moniker given to them of the big three. In fact, you might say he was a little miffed at it and thought it could have actually have been the big four with himself being the fourth. Why was he so against the calling out of the big three? Well, number one, he was a gentleman golfer, but at the same time, he considered himself very competitive. And he felt like, hey, if I didn't think I could beat these guys, the big three, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, and Gary Player, I wouldn't play. So he felt like they don't scare me. They don't frighten me. Uh, I'm not going to uh, give in to if they've got a one-shot lead with four holes to go. I'm thinking about beating him. I'm not going to give up too early, too quickly without giving it everything I've got. So he had a lot of, enough confidence. And as you mentioned, he did not want to come right out and, and say, I insist there should be a big four. Okay. He didn't really pound that. But at the same time, when they said, well, what do you think about the big three? Sometimes he would basically have little or nothing to say because he didn't feel like that was a, they were the only three golfers that could attract people to either turn on their television and watch golf or go out to the golf tournament if the golf tournament was in a particular area. Right. He thought that the big three moniker might actually have an adverse effect on golf because if one of the big three or any of the big three were not playing in your golf tournament, then it didn't measure up against the other golf tournaments. Exactly. And Tony felt like not only himself, but there are a handful, more than a handful, many 20, 30 golfers who really had a, a strong golf game and could very well win a golf tournament. And, you know, if they uh, had a, a, a very accurate week with their irons and their putter and so forth and played very well, that doesn't mean that Arnold, Jack or Gary were the only people that had a chance to win a golf tournament. There were a lot of people out there that had a chance. And Tony felt like, Hey, people, 
you know, that run the PGA give other golfers a little credit for being pretty good players. But in all fairness, the big three were the big three in a way because they had all of those tournament wins. They won all of those majors. Tony had just one major, which came, you know, at the British Open. But those guys were the big three. You're you are right. And if we look at no, there's no no other way to say it. If we looked at the stats and looked at how many U.S. Open, uh, Masters tournaments, PGA's tournaments, and all, obviously the British Open, how many of those tournaments, the three of the big three won? It was very many. I don't have it right off the top of my <laughs> fingers, but I could. It was way up there. Sure, sure. So let's go back to the beginning and paint a picture here for me. Where did Tony's love for the game come from, and what was he like off the course before joining the tour? You know, I read in your book he was maybe a little mischievous, had a sense of humor. He even knew how to fake his mother out when the report cards came home. Tell me about Tony Lima off the course. Well, off the course, first of all, he didn't spend much time off the course. By that, I mean he had a reputation of cutting classes uh, and caddying or going to the golf course, which is Lake Chabot, which is right there near San Leandro, California, on the eastern side of the uh, San Francisco Bay. And uh, like I said, he'd caddy or play when most people, young children, or not young students, 15, 16, 17, would be in class, but he would skip a lot of class. And uh, he just loved to be around golf and would play quite a bit. There was a gentleman that taught at a uh, practice range called, his name was Lucius Bateman, and he was a golf professional, didn't play on the tour, but he was an excellent teacher, and he uh, allowed Tony to, to work there and hit practice balls, and it got to the point where Lucius Bateman, and now we're talking in the early 50s, when Tony was like 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, Lucius would take Tony to golf uh, courses all around the Oakland, uh, San Leandro area and get some pretty good money matches set up. And here's, you know, Tony at those teenage years and people say, who's this skinny kid? He doesn't have a chance. And Lucius Bateman knew, worked with him very hard, but knew how good he could play. And he did say that Tony always came through. I mean, in the clutch, Tony either made that putt or got up and down from a difficult situation around the green or what have you. And I also read where they were money matches, but Tony never had money in his pocket, so he had to win. Exactly. exactly. And you and I both and, and some of the listeners are aware that uh, Lee Trevino was a lot that way. You know, the yeah. toughest dollar to pay for is the one that you don't have in your pocket and you have no other alternative <laughs> but to win. And Tony was much that way, the same way. I mean, he, in other words, he played with money he didn't have. But he wanted to work in the industry. But getting that first job in golf was a little difficult. And then he finally does get a job as an assistant at San Francisco Country Club. But getting that job, hearing about it, he heard about it in a very peculiar way. Tell me about that. Yeah, very peculiar. Uh, he was discharged from the Marines. Marine Corps, and I think this was 1955, and he was real close to home. He was in Hayward, California, which is just south of San Leandro, and I think Tony was going somewhere around uh, 55 or 60 miles per hour 
in a convertible uh, with his Marine uh, uniform still on. And he was real close to home, but he was way 20, 30 miles over the speed limit. And he was pulled over. And all of a sudden, he recognized the officer and vice versa. They recognized each other and started talking, obviously, about golf immediately. And then uh, the pro, the excuse me, the officer said, hey, I understand the professional, head professional, John Gertson over at San Francisco Golf Club is looking for an assistant. And I just found out a week or two ago about this opening. You might apply for it. And so they talked for 10, 15 minutes, and Tony thanked him for the uh, uh, for the uh, referral there. And all of a sudden, uh, Tony got back in his car, was driving home, and realized not one word was said about how many miles per hour <laughs> he was going over the speed limit. So, And he eventually had the interview, and I, I'm not sure. I think there were like 10, 12 other golf professionals, and Tony got the job. Now, keep in mind, he's fresh from being discharged from the Marine Corps, and you know he was polite, uh, attentive, uh, a gentleman, the whole thing. And he impressed uh, head pro John Geertsen enough to where, boom, he got the job. And Tony went on to say, I had no idea why he picked me. But he did. Sometimes things happen for a reason. You know, he had a had a pretty good amateur career. And after serving in the Marines, like we said, he decided to give golf a chance and ultimately tour golf a chance. Tell me about his early days on tour and how Jay Bear actually kept him from quitting. Yeah, that's a very good point. Number one, uh, in 1957, he was given uh, $500 uh, by a gentleman, I forgot his name right now, but it'll come to mind, who was the same gentleman that caddied in 1911 for Francis We Met when Francis We Met won the... Uh, the open at Brookline and this gentleman, which I can't think of his name this second, he had uh, moved to San Francisco and got a car dealership, probably more than one. And he liked, he liked to back golfers. And one of them, not only with Tony Lima, he gave Tony Lima $500 in the early uh, January of 1957 and said, go down in Southern California, play in some golf tournaments, get your feet wet. And if you can pay me back, and Tony eventually went in where he played in five tournaments. And this isn't the PGA Tour. This is like the minor league, the smaller tournaments. And it turns out that Tony won a tournament uh, in January, late January of 1957. And I uh, won $1,000. And he, uh, as he left town from the, in the Southern California, he sent a check for $500 back to the gentleman uh, who had uh, advanced the money to him. And then he was in Elko, Nevada, where he started in March 1st of 1957. And Tony played in tournaments uh, all around the Western states. And that's where he learned how to, to be more competitive and win some of those tournaments. And he was always, uh, as they say, in the hunt. Sure, sure. You know, his rise to prominence on the tour was not meteoric, to say the least. In fact, it took him several years to get that first PGA Tour win. What were the first few years on the tour like for him, and what held him back? Well, number one, it was tough. And what held him back was probably a temper and uh, that was not under control. And sometimes he always felt that if he missed a putt, 
that he should have made, like two, three, four, five foot putt on one hole. The very next hole, somewhere in his brain, he would start thinking, I deserve to hit this ball out of bounds. In other words, self-punishment, because I failed to do what I should have done back on the previous green, I'm going to knock this thing in out of bounds, which it took a while and it took a lot of conversations. And in those years from 1958 to 1962, Tony became extreme, extremely good friends with a gentleman by the name of Danny Arnold. Danny Arnold was an L.A. Uh, Hollywood type producer, director of movies and television shows. Uh, and he met Tony over in uh, Palm Springs in the Bob Hope golf tournament. He was a partner of Tony one day, and I think it was 57, 58, 58 or 59, I'm sorry. This gentleman talked with Tony, Danny Arnold, many, many times and helped him overcome his, his temper and also helped him become more positive oriented and had more. And Tony began to have more confidence in his game. One thing we have to talk about is sponsorship. Many golfers needed financial help to stay on tour. They would find an investor of sorts to finance them. Tony found Jim Malarkey. And Tony, I don't think, would have made it without Jim. But getting out from under his grip wasn't easy. What was that arrangement like? And do you know of anything similar that goes on today like it did back then? No, I think uh, it may have gone on similar in the 50s and 60s and maybe even in the 70s. I think it's completely different now the way these players come out of college and they've had you know a tremendous background in, in tournaments, the NCAA tournaments and amateur tournaments around the country uh, to where they're sponsored right off the bat. Uh, literally, you remember when uh, Tiger Woods came out in 1996 at his very first tournament, Nike gave him a $40 million check and said, go go, go crazy. You know, yeah, no, no, no more pressure on Tiger. Yeah, from word go. But no, Tony worked a deal with Jim Malarkey and it was basically that uh, Jim Malarkey would, in those days, this isn't going to sound like much money, but he would advance Tony twelve to fourteen thousand dollars. Now we're talking nineteen fifty-eight through sixty-two, uh, twelve to fourteen thousand dollars annually, and uh, anything Tony won over that, uh, Jim Malarkey would get, I think, two-thirds over that, and. Tony Lima would get one third. Now, I may have that backwards. It could be Tony gets two thirds over 14 grand and uh, Jim Malarkey would get one third. I'm not quite sure. But the idea of Jim Malarkey was I want you to go out there and I want you to live high. I don't want you to drive between tournaments. I want you to fly. I want you to be rested before the tournament comes. I don't want you to be going on a 36 hour uh, drive from uh, Georgia to uh, northern Michigan or whatever the case may be. And so he, he tried to set him up so he had enough money, didn't have to worry about living the low life, basically. And eventually, Jim would hope that that investment would pay off quite handsomely. And it started to pay off for Jim, and Tony was winning and wasn't making any money for himself. Yeah, because there was, there was one stipulation in that agreement that uh, if Tony did not make uh, the like I said earlier, the roughly fourteen thousand dollars that Jim Malarkey advanced him annually. If Tony did not make that much to pay him back, basically, then it would basically go on a uh, a bill 
that that Tony owed him. And and Tony tried at that time to say, well, let's just sever this thing. And Jim Malarkey said, no, no, you got to let me keep I'll, I'll keep backing you. But the it was the bills were were getting bigger and bigger and more. And Tony was kind of going into the hole. But uh, then when he started winning, instead of getting endorsements and making extra money and this and that from uh, the clubs that he played or the shirts and clothing that he wore and so forth, he didn't sign those contracts because all those proceeds were going to go to Jim Malarkey to pay him back. And Tony felt like, I'm not going to end up with anything. So let me just say this. In 1962, Tony won his first golf tournament. And then he became popular, and he he basically qualified for the 1963 Masters, his first uh, time that he played in the Masters at Augusta National in Georgia. And he ended up finishing second, and he lost by one shot to Jack Nicholas. And on the 18th green on that Sunday afternoon, Tony made a 22-foot downhill putt that broke left, and then it broke back to the right. And uh, matter of fact, I might as well just tell you, I watched that. Uh, telecast <laughs> on uh, TV in 1963, and I could go to that green and tell you exactly where that putt started and exactly where that pin was cut, and it was really, really a wonderful, exciting finish. And then, of course, Jack Nicholas came right behind Tony, and uh, his second shot went 40 to 45 feet beyond the cup, which means that he had a real slippery downhill putt. And Jack Nicholas put his first putt about four to five feet below the cup. And he barely snuck in the par putt, which eventually gave him the one-shot victory over Tony at Augusta National in 1963. Hey, you know, his game really started to take a turn for the better in 1961 on the Caribbean Tour. Then, as you had mentioned earlier, um, he really got a lot out of meeting Danny Arnold. And once he finally understood how to control his temper... His game took off. In 1962, he finally got that first win. And it came in a playoff against Bob Rosberg. And I don't know if it's controversy, but as with anything, there's another story <laughs> that that most people would never hear about. But with Tony, there's a story about almost everything. In the 1962 Orange County Open, Tony uh, got in a playoff with Bob Rosberg. And on the very first hole, Tony uh, goes over to his tee shot on the first hole, and it was barely in bounds. And he advances the ball to par five, got on the green, made a putt, tied Bob Rosberg. For the first two holes, they, they broke even. And then on the uh, third hole, which is par three, uh, Tony was like 10 and a half feet away from his uh, uh, birdie putt, which he made. And Bob Rosberg missed his putt, and Tony therein won. And uh, what that was in 1962. And in 1989, we all may remember that Bob Rosberg worked on ABC uh, golf tournaments, and there was a tournament in Chicago. And a, a gentleman came up to him and said, do you have a moment, Mr. Rosberg? And he said, well, sure. And uh, the Marine said, do you remember that playoff you had with Tony Lima back in 62? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> and he said, he, said, he said, yeah, I came in second. I, I lost. And he said, 
Um, well, remember his tee shot on the very first hole in Bob Rosberg? Well, I didn't go over there on the left-hand side of the fair or the rough, not the fair, it was left of the rough of the fairway. But he did say, uh, yeah, Tony was barely in bounds, and, and the Marine said, well, I got something I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Uh, as you know, Tony was a Marine, and like I said, I was at Camp Pendleton at the time, and I went over there, and, and Tony's ball was out of bounds, Mr. Rosberg, and I kicked it. Uh, just a few feet, but I kicked it back in bounds. <laughs> well, I must say, Warren, Bob Rosberg did not chuckle like you just did, okay, <laughs> <laughs> at all. Uh, he he looked at the man. He said, "You mean you kicked his ball back in in bounds?" And the Marine said, "Hey, one Marine to another. I I was going to cover for him. You know, I was no offense to you, Mister Rosberg, but I was rooting for Tony Lima." Wow. Uh, yeah, that's a wow. So, wow. but if you don't mind, I need to go back the day before that, uh, uh, the playoff, it was a Saturday and Tony had a one shot lead at the orange County open and they were at, uh, the golf course there and they were in a very small, like a, a card room was the press in those days. They didn't have a great big press, uh, tent or what have you, like they do now at golf tournaments. And, uh, one of the newspaper people said, Tony, tell me something. You've never won on the tour. What are you going to do if you win this? Thing? I was just going there. I was just going to say, <laughs> this is, no, no, not at all. This is a, this is big because there are a lot of people that have heard of Champagne Tony Lima, but not everyone knows why he was named Champagne Tony Lima. So please continue. Sure, Warren. What happened is the gentleman, the, the sports writer, asked that question. What are you going to do if you win this thing? And Tony was nursing a, a can of beer, and he picked the beer up, and he pointed to it with, one of his, with his other hand, and he said, I'll tell you one thing. If I win this thing tomorrow, we're not drinking beer. We're drinking champagne. And what a really neat, really a background thing, a photographer for the L.A. Times was standing there, and after the uh, press conference ended, he walked down the hall. And keep in mind, this is a country club in in uh, Anaheim, right outside of Anaheim, California. He went to the manager and said, tell me something. Uh, do you have any champagne around here? He goes, nah, we only carry champagne for weddings and graduations and uh, anniversaries and things. We don't have any champagne. He, the the uh, photographer for LA Times said, you better go get some. You better get some bottles of champagne because Tony Lima just moments ago, right down there in the conference, he said, press conference, he said, if I win this thing, I'm having champagne. So you better put it. So I got to give him the background credit for making sure that the manager of the country club had enough champagne so that that day when Tony did win the, uh, the uh, playoff against Bob Rossberg, the champagne float. And it never quit. <laughs> yeah, it never quit. It became a a staple of Tony's career. Every time Tony Lima won a tournament, champagne flowed. Exactly. And we got to give a little credit there to Fred Corcoran. Now, Fred Corcoran was a, uh, a gentleman that was basically a... Uh, agent for ted williams he was an agent for uh, a lot of other famous athletes in the 1940s and 50s and uh 
he became Tony Lima's agent, and he was the one that got a hold of a very famous champagne company out of France, Moet et Chardin. Chardin. Excuse me if I pronounce that incorrectly. <laughs> I took two years of French in high school, but that's been quite a few years ago. So, but it was one—it was one of the top. They they produce 29 million bottles of champagne annually. Okay, so this isn't just a, a small company. But anyway, they they always had when Tony was in the hunt at a golf tournament on Sunday afternoon for the final round, and it looked like he may have a chance to win. Moet at Shed Shedan always had a case of champagne or more handy so that the uh, press corps could celebrate along with Tony Lima, his victory. And that happened 12 times because he, he won 12 tournaments, including the course of the 1964 British open. And yes, the champagne flowed at that. that one. Awesome. Just awesome. Earlier you mentioned his wife, Betty, and we would certainly be remiss if we didn't talk about Betty and here we go again. Just like out on the golf course, there's a story about how he met his wife. It was they, in 19... And, and, yeah, and let me just say this. They met in a way that a lot of guys would like to meet their wife. <laughs> yeah, it was real simple. It was an American Airlines flight from Dallas, uh, Texas, to San Francisco. And uh, it was... Uh, I think it was in 1961 or 62. I'm not quite sure. But he met Betty Klein. And uh, they were not, she was a, uh, a stewardess for American Airlines. And it turns out that uh, there weren't very many people on that flight. I don't know if it was a Sunday night flight or whatever, the whatever the details of when the flight was. But it, uh, Tony was, I'm not going to say he was flirting with her, but they ended up playing gin rummy for most of the flight because she didn't have that many passengers to serve uh, drinks and dinner and so forth. And uh, one thing led to another. And uh, they didn't see each other for, I think, uh, three months. And it turns out, and I don't know if he kept in touch with her, but three months later, there they are on the same flight. And then one thing led to another, and they started dating each other and so forth and so on. And they, they eventually married in uh, late April of 1963, uh, shortly after Tony had played so well in the 1963 Masters at Augusta. Just a lot of stories when it comes to Tony Lima. You know, he liked playing in team events, too, like the Ryder Cup. He played in the Piccadilly, uh, Shell's Wonderful World of Golf. He was always did well, but the Ryder Cup was really important to him. And his first Ryder Cup actually came before he played in that British Open in 1963. And he had a stellar Ryder Cup career. Eight matches. He won eight matches, halved one and only lost one. What was it about the Ryder Cup that brought out the best in Tony? Well, that's a great question. And uh, as you, we said earlier, he was in the Marines and he served his country from 1953 to 55. And I picked up a quote that he said at the 1963 Ryder Cup, which was played uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, at uh, Bobby... Uh, Bobby Jones golf course. Tony said that he just had butterflies and everything when they played the uh, national anthem. And he realized we're not playing for money here. We're playing for the pride of, of the game of golf 
in the country that we represent. And so he really, really wanted, got his game really in, in great shape before the Ryder Cup. And as you said a moment ago, Warren, he played very well and won most of his matches in that Ryder Cup event at East Lake there in uh, Atlanta. And a little sidebar that a lot of people may not know, and these are the little things, Warren, that, that enhanced his popularity. Here he is on number six, and I played that golf course. And number six is a uh, par three that's it. The green is out in the middle of a lake. Sure, you've got a path that goes to it, but other than that, it's completely surrounded by water. And Tony was in a match with somebody, and it was he literally was getting ready to take his club back. So he was within a split second of executing his shot. And the clubhouse isn't that far away. And a tremendous amount of glasses or dishes or something, absolutely a waiter or somebody, they just shattered. And it made a, a extremely loud sound of all this glass breaking. And, of course, at that response, Tony backed off the shot. And, of course, everybody, players and caddies and, and the, uh, the people in the crowd, fans, they all looked toward the clubhouse. And there was dead silence. For just a second. And all of a sudden, somebody in the gallery hollered out, Tony, there go the champagne glasses. <laughs> Which is a great one-liner. You know, it was just a perfect thing to say. But things like that loosened everybody up, you know, and uh, it made things interesting. And there's there's one other point, that, uh, a little event that happened, Warren, during the uh, one of his matches Tony had a putt that he literally had to make to save uh, from losing the match. And Horton Smith was a very famous golfer back in the 30s and 40s. Matter of fact, Horton Smith won the first British Open, excuse me, won the first Masters at Augusta in 1934. And uh, he had had a reputation for becoming uh, an extremely good putting teacher. And Horton Smith... Uh, one time in 1962, I think it was, Tony had not qualified for the United States Open, which was going to be at Oakland Hills, but he was getting ready to play in another tournament, and he didn't make the cut or something, and he was all disgruntled, and he was about ready to leave Michigan in 1962 and fly back and take a week or two off and go back to San Leandro, but he decided, wait a minute, Horton Smith teaches putting, I ought to go see him. So he called him up on the phone right outside of Detroit. Horton Smith said, yeah, Tony, we met a couple years ago. You're welcome to come by. I'll be delighted to help you with your putting game. And he gave Tony a short and to the point lesson on that particular afternoon in 1962. And that is another thing that really, really helped Tony's uh, putting game as far as just use your right hand, your your left hand and wrist are basically used for guide purposes, but you just think about moving your uh, your right hand. And that's where your your force, shall we say, or the speed of the blade as you strike the ball. And so what happened was Horton Smith in 1963, we're going to go back to Atlanta at the Ryder Cup. Horton Smith was right there beside the green. And just before Tony punted, he looked in the gallery and he saw Horton Smith there 
And he said, now I know I have to make this putt. There's my mentor <laughs> sitting there watching. I got to make it. And so he made it. And as he walked off the green, Tony said, I saw you and I knew I had to make it. And Horton Smith just looked at him and said, you had no other choice. <laughs> you know, so, but little things like that happened throughout his career, which uh, just shows you that. And Tony wasn't afraid to give credit uh, at a lot of different times to people that have helped him, such as Horton Smith, such as Chick Aber, and other golfers uh, that he played with in the beginning part of his career. Yeah, I was going to go there. You know, Horton Smith is just another example of the kind of guy that Tony Lima was in that so many players offered Tony help and advice. Again, I've got to ask, what was it about Tony Lima? He had this magnetic personality and people wanted to be with him. They wanted to help him. He was just this great guy. And that's exactly it. He was not only popular, but he was uh, appreciative. And we need to go back just real quick to Betty, who eventually, like I said, in 63, became his wife. She is the one that uh, I can't remember exactly, is 65 or something. Uh, he started getting a little bit more lackadaisical. And he'd show up sometimes on Wednesday without, you know, most tournaments are played Thursday through Sunday. He'd show up Wednesday uh, and maybe he played the golf course a year prior or what have you. But she said, you know, you got to get take this more serious. You're just thinking that you can just show up and and uh, go to the first tee. No, no, no. That's not the way you became as good as you are. And Betty literally one time when Tony won in 60. Five, I think it was. He won the these two straight years. He won the Buick Open, but for one year, Betty was not there. She was obviously uh, flying with uh, American Airlines or what have you. But what happened, Warren, is Tony was like, "Oh shucks, I I wish Betty was here." And somebody said, uh, "What changed?" And he said, "Well, she told me I got to start to get the tournaments two or three days in advance. I need to really check out the course a little bit uh, with more." detail so forth and so on and then tony came up with the sentence that betty had told him one day tony just looked at the press and said well one day she said you're not that good you just can't show up <laughs> and expect to win so that was another avenue of where betty was not afraid to say hey you're my husband and so forth but you got to work at your game you just can't expect everything to work out perfectly every time he loved playing in Michigan at the Buick. He loved playing the British Open. You know, in 1965, he cracked the $100,000 barrier in official money. Big, big money back then. No longer did he have to worry about Jim Malarkey. He was finally out from under his grip, and he was ready for a huge season. But injuries affected him throughout early 1966, and he finally got it going at the Greater New Orleans Open in mid-May with a tie for third. He followed that with another tie for third at Colonial, one in Oklahoma. Then he went ninth, fourth, fourth, fifth, before back-to-back -back disappointing finishes at the British Open and then the PGA. But all in all, his game was back on track. And then tragedy, horrible, horrific. What happened? Well, uh, as I stated in the book, uh, 
and, and you're right, by the way, on your lead up into 1966. And, uh, of course, Tony was looking forward to the U.S. Open, which was played uh, out at, uh, in Northern California that he was familiar with in San Francisco. And then the, the PGA. Uh, and on that day or that weekend in 1966, um, Tony had mediocre rounds for the first three rounds. And on July 24th, uh, which was the last and final round of the PGA, which uh, Al and Guy Berger eventually won. But what happened? Tony would eventually shoot a, a 74 on that given day. And I had gone out and watched first. I was 19 years old at the time. And I watched a lot of uh, Tony's round, not every hole, but with three holes left to play, Warren, I uh, told my father, who was with me at the time at Firestone in Akron, Ohio, I said, hey, I'm going to watch Tony play the last three. I'll meet up with you, which we eventually did. But when Tony got to the 18th tee, I'll never forget this for obvious reasons. He absolutely nailed his drive. Okay. He, he crunched it. I've been around golf. Granted, I was only 19, but I've been around golf enough at that time. When somebody really nailed something and caught it pure, I knew what I could see that. But his tee went up in the air, Warren, and landed beside two young men, which were probably eight to 10 years old, somewhere in there. And I was standing right beside those two boys. And they started fighting over the tee. And uh, Tony Lima had started to walk off the tee, but he walked over to the two boys and said, whoa, 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 boys, don't be fighting. Now, keep in mind, this is the 18th tee, last hole of the tournament. And so Tony dipped into his pocket, and I'm three feet away. He dipped into his pocket, and he takes out about a dozen gold tees. Keep in mind, in 1964, he had uh, written a book called Golfer's Gold. Okay, so I guess he started using all gold tees from that time. So he has a handful of these tees and these two little sets of hands, which are, you know, these kids are, like I said, nine years old. He drops these tees, which for all intent and purposes, look like glittering gold going into these small hands. Wow. As I I said, Warren, I was a few feet away. And of course, I don't have to tell you as a 19 year old, what I was thinking is, you know, I wouldn't mind one. (laughs) so he patted him on the head and they scurried away they were gone within a second and so tony started walking down and he was only about six seven feet away and i just looked at him i said tony and he kind of glanced back said yeah i said that was nice and he said uh they're just kids he said besides this is my last hole wow and i never forget i stood there on that tee and I didn't go on down to the fairway in the green. I just kind of uh, walked away. But I stood there and I thought, where am I going to see him again? You know, he's my favorite golfer. And I hope I get the opportunity to watch him play again. And uh, within three or four hours, about four hours after that, he was in a uh, uh, Beechcraft Bonanza, a small four-seat passenger, uh, four-passenger airplane piloted by a lady out of the Chicago area because Tony had a golf tournament to play in the following day just southeast of uh, Chicago. And so and United Airlines was having a strike. And so that's why he had to charter a private plane. And Betty was with him. And there was another co-pilot who was a doctor. And uh, 
they flew over to, uh, like I say, just below Chicago, and the engine was sputtering, and it got to the point where one of the left or right engines went out, and the lady pilot was trying to get the other engine going, and, and I think she was changing the fuel from coming off one tank of on one wing, say the right wing, to the left wing, because you have to keep the fuel close to the same weight because you can't have 300 pounds of fuel in the right wing and 20 pounds of fuel in the left wing. So they, they alternate as the flight uh, transgresses bottom line. uh, She, they told her at the uh, control tower at the small airport, go make a lap, come back. And when she was making a circle and then once again, she was down to about 300 or 250 feet or less. uh, She eventually the other, she was trying to switch engines and it sputtered and one thing led to another, and then the plane crashed on the Lansing golf course, and the plane landed right beside the number seven green, and all four uh, perished in the plane crash. And uh, I must say, the whole world, seriously, the whole world of golf lost one of the most colorful and enjoyable uh, professionals in golf on that day. Horrific. At age 32, Horrific. by the way, he's 32. So young. His his career was short, just way too short. But he left an incredible mark on the game. He won 12 PGA Tour tournaments, plus another 10 unofficial events. He played in two Ryder Cups. His official career earnings came to uh, over $350,000. And when you consider that last year's winner of the British Open, Henrik Stenson, for the tournament, he won $1.5 million. Who knows what Lima's career earnings would equate to today and how much more he might have won. Simply a marvelous career. There's so much more we can talk about, but <laughs> we can't go on forever. If, if there's anything else you want us to know about Tony Lima, what would that be? He loved the game, and he loved the people. He was a real uh, family man. He tried to give the game of golf all he had, and uh, he appreciated every aspect. In other words, I remember one quote, Warren, when Tony said, you know, a guy may be the uh, – parking lot attendant and and one other guy at the golf club may shine shoes and somebody else may be the chef that never gets seen but he said you got to understand these people are professionals in what they do and they try to make the environment in this case around the golf course as nice as they possibly can so what i think what i'm trying to say here is i think tony had a real appreciation and respect for everybody not only in the golf game but everybody and he just tried to be his uh to do his best and i think one of the quotes that i used toward the end of the book was he said i didn't necessarily want to be the greatest golfer in the world but maybe i didn't have enough talent he said i saw up close what arnold palmer had to go through as far as people for years and years always trying to get autographs and can you do this for me can you do that and he said i don't want to do that but he said i wanted to be a personage in the game and i wanted to be remembered for somebody who really cared about other competitors and also the fans that came out to watch players in golf tournaments yeah i mean he had a uh, a great career and um unfortunately i just 
I just think that um, he's not remembered the way he should be, which is why I decided to do a show about Tony Lima. And I can't thank you enough for joining me on this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes. Your book, Bill, terrific. Uh, Champagne Tony Lima, From Triumph to Tragedy. If someone wanted to read that book, where could they get a copy? Just go to Amazon.com or you could just go to uh, TonyLima.com or just Tony Lima, period. And it'll guide you to the book. And, uh, yeah, I just try to put a piece together. And, and and like you just said right there, Warren, the reason why, the primary reason why I wrote the book is because I felt he was the, uh, a, the golfer who did not get the notoriety, uh, especially to this generation. And it's like people have to be in their 60s or 70s that even remember Tony because, let's face it, he uh, – he left us uh, over 50 years ago. So uh, it's uh, it would just been a labor of love, basically, on my part. Bill, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, and I thank you very much, Warren, for the opportunity. And I hope the listeners enjoy uh, the story about a really, really great golfer. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Lima won 22 tournaments overall, 12 on the PGA Tour. He was a member of two Ryder Cup teams where he compiled a record of eight wins, one loss, and two ties. At the age of 32, he was barely in his prime, and his game was really coming together when he was tragically killed. No telling how many more tournaments or how many more majors he might have won. For more on Tony Lima, please check out sportsfh.com. Not only can you see more about Tony, but you can check out past episodes of Sports Forgotten Heroes and see who's coming up on future podcasts. You can also learn how to participate in a future podcast and contribute to the show and become a Hall of Fame sponsor. That's sportsfh.com. There's also a comment section, and we'd love to hear from you. You could even suggest stars for future shows. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes, or check us out on Facebook. Again, you can get all the information you need on Sports Forgotten Heroes at SportsFH.com. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we'll take a look back at the career of baseball's Dean Chance and a surprising career after his playing days were over. And joining me to talk about Dean will be two-time Cy Young Award winner, Denny McLean. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.